fireworks, on our anniversaries, on our days of festivities. He took it, he made it a gun, and he conquered China. We are talking about a certain type of superiority complex that exists in the white man wherever he is. And that's what we have to understand today so that everything goes out the window. We talk about survival, that's all. They can cut all that junk about poverty program, education, housing, welfare. We talking about survival and brothers and sisters, we go survive America. We gonna survive America. We gonna survive America. KPFK, listener-sponsored radio for all of Southern California. At 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, and 99.5 Ridgecrest and China Lake. And streaming live at kpfk.org. Wake up, everybody. No more sleeping in bed. Welcome to KPFK's Morning Mix Radio Magazine. Coming up is Voices from the Frontlines with Eric Mann. Wake up, everybody, no more sleeping in bed. No more back thinking, time for thinking ahead. You're on KPFK 90.7. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. Your national movement building show. Wake up and smell the revolution. So today's show is going to be a fundraising drive, a fundraising conversation with Channing Martinez, Julian Lamb, Eric Mann, Kamal Franklin, many others, including Emily Zamora and Keith Lamar. Stay tuned and let's listen. So here's how the show is going to go today. I've asked Julian Lamb, our, our co-producer, to work with us to find seven clips that we thought were really great from the past. So we found five that are going to be for seven minutes. One is going to be with Junius Williams. These are all ones you may have heard. These are sort of our greatest hits. Who's the head of the North and a veteran of the struggle in Newark? Emily Zamora who's a young student organizer with the Labor Community Strategy Center, Bus Writers Union, and yeah, who got very good reviews when she was on the show from a lot of you. Kamal Franklin, the head of community movement builders in Atlanta, a very thoughtful Black liberation organizer. Hollis Watkins, one of the founders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who is also the chair of the 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer that... Julian and I attended in 2014, if you can imagine that, and Keith Lamar, who we continue to have on because he is facing, uh, it's hard to even say, he's facing possible execution on November 16th of this year if we don't stop it. And yes, the answer is KeithLamar.org is the way to reach them and do everything you can to help. So. We're going to start. I'm going to start by talking to you about two things. 
the first is the sort of please, please, please write me letters, Eric Mann, to voices from the front lines. Because Kenny Martinez and Julian Lamb and I put a lot of time into the show as volunteers. And it means a lot to know, is there anybody else on the other side? Because that's what we're trying to figure out is, can we use this as movement building radio? So as I've asked several of you to write to me, I'm happy to read you at least three that I got. And I'm hoping we can get 10 today at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. So first I got one from Margo Iser, who said, also, I love the music and dancing. Great way to start a day. Hello, Eric. I learned a lot and like the new time. Oh, yeah. Eric Mann, you're on Voices from the Frontlines. Your National Movement Building show, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution. It's 8 a.m. In order to connect with more people and let them know they're part of the community, talk about also that 93.7 in North San Diego and 99.5 in Ridgecrest, China Lake. Be well and have a good day and tempted to attend the event so I can meet in person and do outreach for KPFK. He is sad because some people believe in a God, which tells them to be mean to other people who believe in a different God. Next one is from Wendy Reeves. Eric, I heard your show for the first time this morning. One of the steps to help the gentleman that is on death row just heard KeithLamar.org. That's correct, Wendy. That is, I'm sure, the right website. Reach out to them, and there'll be a lot of different ways to help, including financially supporting his campaign, if that's what you choose to do. Thank you for the work you're doing and the light you are holding. Then from Dean Stahl, hi, Eric, I listened to your show this morning, the interview with Keith and the poem at the end. And so the great poem that everybody's talking about was a woman named Eartha Hopkins. And if you go back on Voices from the Frontlines and listen to the conversation with Keith Lamar, the 23-minute version, you'll hear that wonderful end of the segment by Eartha Hopkins. You ask people to write you a letter, and so that's what I'm doing. My legal name is Diana Stahl. I'm in Calabasas, and I go by the name Dean. Just want you to know I'm here and listening. Thank you so much for the show and your work. It makes me glad a show like yours is on the radio with so much noise today. Appreciate you, Dean. So. You have no idea how much these emails mean to Channing and myself and Julian, because we do wake up and smell the revolution. We do want to talk to you. And writing back to Eric at Voices from the Frontlines, which I'll distribute to both Channing and Julian and myself, means so much to us. So how about it today? Ten of you, you can do this. Mainly give money to KPFK at 818-985-5735. But also write to me at Eric at Voices from the Frontlines. Let your voice be heard. And every letter that I receive, positive, negative, captivated, nauseated, I will read on the show. Okay? So let's talk about the crisis we're in here. Pacifica Radio and KPFK isn't a structural problem, a structural crisis. And we can't solve the structural crisis. I've heard a lot of things about a, you know, a billionaire coming in to save us. I, I did call Elon Musk, but he didn't return my call. The reality is, 
that we are the people that are going to support this show. It's just how it works. And we're going to have to give at a level higher than our comfort level. Because I really think the station, I mean, we don't want to have a radio show that keeps saying the station's in danger. But folks, the station is in danger as fascist mobs are running the country. And Joe Biden is trying to have a war with Russia and China and shoot down balloons, even though, as China said, there's over 10 spy balloons over China. Who's kidding who? The United States has 800 military bases all over the world. What do you think they're doing? They're not just spying. They're invading. They're occupying. But I can say this because we have a show called Voices from the Frontlines and a station called KPFK. I can't really say it on NPR. At least I would like to if they invite me. I can't say it to the LA Times because they won't publish us. So we're in a very difficult situation because the movement used to have a lot more outlets of which KPFK could be the best, but you'd have other outlets. Right now, for many of us, KPFK and Counterpunch, by the way, the amazing magazine, are two of the only places, along with Black Commentator and Black Agenda Report, you know, we know there are a few others, but in terms of radio, folks, it's KPFK, 818-985-5735, And we need you to call in now and make the largest donation you've ever made. So with that, we're going to play my friend Junius Williams. Once Black Power did enter Newark formally and officially, when Willie Rick made that statement, marching with Stokely, and uh, I forgot who the other person was who who actually formulated that march. But from that point on, Black Power was officially in Newark when we heard it, even though it was already there, as you say. But when you fast forward to 1970, on the theory of black power, two things happen gradually, but simultaneously. Uh, And I I talk about all of this in my book, Unfinished Agenda, Urban Politics in the Era of Black Power, which has been out for a while, but people can still get that on Amazon. And we just the, ordered five copies for our bookstore, Strategy and Soul bookstore. Well, that's great. That's great. Two things happened. We, once we got the medical school to back off 120 acres and take 60 acres, we got 60 acres of land, vacant urban renewal land to build houses, which we then had to fight within the community to make that happen. The other thing we did was to make sure that the folks on the, the workforce in this new hospital and new school were black and brown, that there was a sufficient number. We said we wanted half of the apprentices and one-third of the journeymen. Well, we ended up with something called journeyman trainees, which I won't go into, but that quota was more or less met. So we were implementing the things that we gain from the medical school, which was done on a black power basis. Why? Because most of the white allies had abandoned Newark and gone somewhere else uh, or were afraid to do any kind of work because that's what people were talking about, black power. It was a misinterpretation, but that's what happened. The other thing that happened was the beginning of the drive to elect the first black mayor. Right. And that's where the United Brothers 
comes in, which was a uh, Baraka the Elder construction, which morphed into Committee for a Unified Newark, which was based on cultural nationalism. But now to what Ron Karinga prophesied, though, at that time, Baraka and Karinga were working hand in hand. These were two organizations, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and there were some others somewhere else. But those were the two main ones that said uh, we had to go by the principles of the, the Kawaita. But to give Baraka credit to keep his eyes on the press, he didn't force people to do that because he said the most important thing for us to do is to elect a black mayor. So it was his idea also to have a convention, a black and Puerto Rican convention. Whites were invited, right. but black and Puerto Rican was the main agenda. So we had things we wanted to see done. For example, the state had to take care of, of, uh, of, of uh, the state had to pay for education. Uh, there, there was to be a citizen review board because the police were vicious and unwieldy all of that was what we said so this was the beginning of the era of the black mayors did ken gibson run on that platform the ultimate winner the man who came out of the black and puerto rican convention to get the most votes no he did not no he did not uh there was he had no intention of doing that right because he was not of that ilk. He was from Prudential Insurance. Uh, it wasn't so much Prudential at that point because Prudential, you see, that was a unique election because it was not fostered by, no, sponsored by the Democratic Party. There was no smoke-filled back room where Prudential and others came and put a whole lot of money. This was a people's election. This was done by the folks that we were just talking about, the people who were on the front line. We were the strategists. We were the, the army. This was the group that put him in. I know. So he needed. Huh? I was there in 66. Yes. Yes. This was, well, this was later than 66. This was 69 into 1970. That's when he was elected. Yeah, but in 66, so, Junius, I'm just saying we're not disagreeing. In 66, he right. ran the first time and did great. And that's what gave confidence. Right. So keep going. The, the voice well, you're he hearing did. is Junius Williams, and he's the head of right now, he does a, a really great podcast called Everything is Political, and he's the author of Unfinished Agenda, Urban Politics in the Era of Black Power. Keep going, Junius. Yes, he did run in 66, and he lost, but it showed that black people were ready because he got uh, 15,000 votes, I believe. That's right. And it, and he decided that, yeah, I'm going to... George Richardson was the man who put him up to that, thinking he was going to step in and do that. George Richardson was a state assemblyman at that point and had quite a record as an advocate. But George didn't believe in black power. So he was pushed aside. Yep. Ken came in believing whatever Ken believed and for 16 years he was the mayor so what is happening now I, yes, I'm, I'm answering your question 
with that history. Yeah, of course. It's but, great. But uh, the man now is the son of the man I call Baraka the Elder or Emir Baraka. His name is Raz Baraka, and he's a very good man. He has put together a platform which is, is really based upon the principles of looking at class and looking at race. Most of the people in the city of Newark are still black and brown. So the kinds of things he has done, for example, he said we're going to have a police review board and it will have subpoena power. So these are the kinds of things that uh, he has done. Now, of course, he had help, but he was, he was sufficiently a politician to understand that this had to be done with the help of other people. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. Wake up and smell the revolution. I'm in studio today with Julian Lamb and Channing Martinez, the co-producers, co-hosts, co-everything with me, because the three of us put out the show. And today is going to be a very important fundraising show where we're going to talk about KPFK, the fund drive. And before you know anything, you know the number, 818-985-5735. I'm going to say it a whole lot today because we're going to raise a whole lot of money for KPFK. So, Kenny Martinez, you and I have worked on the show. Uh, how long have you worked on the show with me? Uh, for at least six or seven years. So, so we, Channing, you and I started working together in 2015. And one of the things we did together was we went to Paris. And I, one of the things interesting is I did, I just remember, thanks to the support of Alan Minsky, I was doing regular correspondence from the United Nations Framework Climate Change Conference in Paris in December of 2015 on Voices from the Frontlines, but also they had me on the news, which was very cool. Where were you at mentally in 2015? And how were you understanding your role on Voices from the Frontlines? Um, I quite honestly was an organizer in training in 2015. And so I was really honored to be, you know, one of the only organizers asked to join you and the team in Paris um, on this international trip. And we were going to United Nations. Um, that's one. But then we got there. And what I saw was just alarming. I mean, we would set up Playbook and Katrina's Legacy and the sixth chapter of Katrina's Legacy on a table in the lunch area. And, you know, people would see, what are you going to do about the United States of America? And I swear, I kid you not, people would see the book and then they would stop and then they would walk on the other side of the hall to pass us so as to not be associated with the group that's calling on the United States to do anything. Yeah, well, we're going to get back into that in a minute. So this is an example, folks. 818-985-5735. We've been rejected internationally, folks, not just in L.A., I mean, any great revolutionary has to learn to deal with rejection because it's pretty bad out there. But we can't reject KPFK, 818-985-5735. I'm serious. What Channing is saying is we went to the United Nations, and most of the NGOs, even from Europe, 
They want to talk about, and maybe some of you do, corporate capitalism, Exxon, Mobile, the bad corporations. But you don't want to talk about the Democratic Party. You don't want to talk about U.S. imperialism. And you don't want to talk about what are we going to do about the United States. For those of you who do, 818-985-5735. What's it like to put together a show? For me, it's exciting. I mean, you really get to play it like it's chess and checkers put together. First, everything is about energy, because what you hear on the radio is the energy. If you are having a bad day, even if you're you know, fake smiling, because there's no such thing as fake smiling on air, people can hear your mood on the radio. <laughs> so, so even if you're having a bad day and you're trying to fake it and like you're having a good day, everyone's going to hear you're having a bad day. Um, and so everything starts with the mood with the radio, no matter what you're doing. You can be saying, I want to go to Disneyland in the most militant way. People will want to go to Disneyland because you said it in the most militant way and excited because it's all about the energy. Um, so that's one thing that we always have to condition ourselves before we even get on the mic to say, are we even ready to be on the microphone? Um, and then it's really exciting because you're putting together a show. Um, putting together voices for myself is always like, how do you put together a play? And it's it really is a play um, and it gets exciting. And so for me, it gets exciting because I get to figure out, do we have the correct introduction? Are our separate elements really entertaining as well as trying to move people? Do they meet our demands? Do they meet the goals and objectives of a strategy center? And then the other exciting pieces is how do they fit together? Sometimes I'm just introducing new African music in between segments but they're related to the actual segments that we're talking about, right? So like last week, it was not planned that we were going to have a segment on The Lion King, but hey, Babu was talking about Africa and being in Africa and how everything starts to the motherland. Eric was talking about Africa and how everything starts to the motherland and bringing specific demands. And then I went to see The Lion King, right? And here you have this song and Simba as, you know, a young person is being reminded, don't forget you are standing on the shoulders of all of your ancestors. Don't forget where things come from. And so my chess move was to put the Lion King on as related to that, right? And so I get to make those kind of exciting choices. Yeah, and to give you credit, you often bring a lot of enthusiasm. Channing, you do put together a great show, and so does Julian. You know, it is segment, tiring, you know, it's got to come to 58 minutes. The reason we're talking to you about this, folks, is that Voices doesn't come out of nowhere. You know, 818-985-5735. We're doing this right now. We're not paid. There's three of us. I think everybody knows I'm a Jew who's worked in the Black community most of my life. Channing is both Black and Belizean from Garifuna. And Julian is Black, Belizean, and Garifuna. So we got one of the strongest Black Belizean Garifuna caucuses on KPFK. And we work together. We're a team. We do everything together. So if that means something to you, what I'm getting to is we are investing in KPFK every every week. Oh, darn, the show's due. Okay, we got to do a show. It takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. I know you like it. But I've done it for nothing or for a lot for almost 15 years. So just understand that that's our contribution. Plus, 
we all contribute to the station. So 818-985-5735. Let's try to raise $3,000 today. And Michael Novick, who's the general manager, he's working for nothing right now. I mean, this guy is amazing, and he's working just his emails alone take an hour to read. He's killing himself to try to make the station viable. So we're trying to make us real human beings. 818-985-5735. Help Channing, help Julian, help Eric, help Michael, help all the shows you like, but help Voices from the Frontlines. Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. Send me an email. More importantly, send your money. And most importantly, do both. So, Julian Lamb, how you doing? I'm doing great, Eric. Well, you and I went to, you know, we keep with like two old warriors keep talking about Mississippi, but you and I went to Mississippi in 2014, along with um, Catherine Murphy and William Sabatino O'Reilly, and we spent about 10 days in Jackson, Mississippi, in the worst flea bag motel. <laughs> uh, but we would do the interview, and then you would edit that night, and we would send it to KPOK. Again, thanks to Alan Minsky, by the way, who was just an amazing uh, program manager, you know, program director, uh, who's, as you know, supported us going to Mississippi, supported us going to uh, Paris, did not support us financially, by the way, just morally. 818-985-5735. We went to Mississippi on our own. We went to Paris on our own. What was it like? Had you edited before? Was William helping you? How did you learn to... Because you were staying up half the night to edit the show and then get it... Yes, yes. Um, I had some editing skill at the time. I was um, attending college, and so I was doing a course on... um, computer information systems and some and some of that required some editing um, knowledge, but most of the editing I learned hands-on. So I had to learn really fast, really quick, because everything on the ground was moving at light speed. And, um, you know, I would stay up all night. It was worth every bit of the time spent doing it. And so I would stay up all night editing to make sure that the files were submitted on time to KPFK so that it would air when it was planned to air. So it was it was definitely worth it. It was a it was a um, a learning process, and um, I was grateful that I had the opportunity to have that experience and to grow and learn in the process of that experience. So yes, it was it was a it was an interesting process for me. Yeah, you know, uh, Julian, I was, you know, somehow on my uh, car, I was doing uh, Bluetooth or something, and and voices came on, almost out of magic. And there was Frankie Adams Johnson, who we've had on, who's one of the great interviews. You're going to hear one of Julian's edited interviews today with Hollis Watkins. And we are going to make this into a CD before we die. And we're going to make it into a book because the transcripts are amazing. But you're going to hear Hollis Watkins, one of the great civil rights leaders. And you're going to hear the nuance of my relationship with him, which is because I really think I did a really good job of making sure they were, of course, the main people who spoke. 
But I was also talking to them because I'm a civil rights veteran. So there was phenomenal chemistry. But Julian, I mean, all the finished products was so clean and so smooth. And that's the product of your handiwork. So uh, again, folks, that's behind the scenes what you don't understand, all this work. So if Julian could stay up all night in 2014, and he's now here again, staying up all night almost in, in L.A. today, 818-985-5735, because there's real human beings working to make this show work. And this is a fundraising show. So with that, it'll be a great segment to play the interview and conversation with Hollis Watkins, uh, a conversation with Eric Mann, and edited by Julian Lamb. All of these different things that you see out here. And that's what gave rise to me wanting to find a way by which I could work on getting rid of all of the things that was unfair, all of the things that were unjust in an effort to try to create a fair and just society. Well, you know, on some level that seems so obvious superficially, and yet in the world of white supremacy, for a black father to say that to a black son was a revolutionary concept. Do you think so? I know it was revolutionary because to me, I knew my father was saying to me, you need to see all people as people, not prioritizing and having one group with priorities and another group not having that. So I'm knowing that was revolutionary because I also had the opportunity to experience where when you step outside the status quo, so to speak, or you get out of line, serious things happen. Saw things happening not only with black people, but also I saw a situation where it was a white man decided that he was gonna change the pay scale for everybody that worked for him. Instead of paying them $3 per day, he was gonna start paying them 75 cents per hour, and he was ostracized. What was the impact of Emmett Till on you? Emmett, How old were you with him, if I could ask? Uh, I think I'm real close to Emmett Till's age. What? So am I, 1955. Okay. I was born at 41. We were born in the same year. I was born in that same year. And that shook me deeply even. That was one of the turning points in my life. So we're about the same age. Mm -hmm. We're 14, 15. Emmett is 15. What was the impact on you? It impacted me tremendously because it was one of those things where all of these things that you've heard about, you know, that you didn't exactly believe, now you know those things are real possibilities. And if it happened to him at that age, then there's a possibility that it might be happening to me. So I have to look at this thing in a different manner, rather than the children versus the older people. But this thing applies all across the board. So it created a little bit of fear, a little bit of ambivalence in me as to where I could be safe, and where I perhaps had stepped across the line. 
and even start trying to figure out how I'll make sure I didn't step across the line. But I realized that to do and be the kind of person my father had told me to be, I was going to have to step across the line. What was your introduction to SNCC? What role did you play in its formation? Where did you come in in its early stages? I came in to SNCC after SNCC was rolling. Okay. Uh, SNCC had been formed, that uh, participated in sit-in demonstrations and all of that. Came in to Mississippi through Bob Moses in right. 1961, working on voter registration. So a friend girl of mine came and told me that Dr. Martin Luther King and some other big folks was in Macomb, you know, right. having meetings with people. She told me where it was being held and all that. So I snatched up my best three buddies and told them, so look, man, so Dr. Martin Luther King is out here in town having a meeting with folks, so let's go meet with him, see what he got to say, see what he's talking about. So I snatched up my three best friends and we went on out to Macomb looking for Martin Luther King. And when we got to where she had told us Martin Luther King was, I found Bob Moses. Mm -hmm. When I walked up, I didn't know who he was, so I walked up and asked him, look, man, say, you Martin Luther King? And he <laughs> said, no, I'm not. He said, you know, in his little so I'm Bob. Bob who? Bob Moses. So I asked him, well, what are you doing here? I said, I'm looking for Dr. King. So he explained to me that he was there working on voter registration, and I asked him what all was involved. So he explained all of that process to me, and, asked us how I would be interested in joining up with him. And I told him, yeah. So that's what I did, began to work with Bob and getting people to come out to the office where he was teaching them how to fill out the voter registration forms in order to become registered voters and just kept on keeping on. So as you were saying this morning, every historical moment is preceded by a different historical moment, and, and we could all go seriously back to the early slave rebellions. But what was unique about 1964? There is a time in history when history just gets accelerated at such a rapid rate. So we had the voter registration, the killing of Mickey Schwerner and Goodman and Cheney. I just realized the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party fight, all in a four-month period. What was it like for you? What, was, what role were you playing at that moment? Being a stick person, I was involved in all aspects of that. Trying to motivate, inspire, and push the further development of the Freedom Democratic Party. Trying to continue to make sure that we continue to register people to vote. Uh, preparing for the 1964 summer project which uh, was coming into Mississippi, knowing that we're bringing people into Mississippi that has not been here before, so therefore you're going to have to be responsible for them. You know, as a young person at that particular time, I think I was sent 23 or 24 different volunteers. Here you are responsible, as I saw, for the lives of 23 people who have never been to Mississippi that know nothing about Mississippi, right. which is a daunting task. So, that's what I had to prepare for. So, the next voice you're going to hear 
is a close comrade and a friend of mine, Emily Zamora. She's a senior at UCLA, which you'll hear. Uh, I work very closely with her. And you're going to listen to a great voice from the front lines, a young Latina who's trying to make the revolution. Welcome to Voices from the Front Lines. Wake up and smell the revolution. I'm Eric Mann, one of the hosts of the show, and one of the voices from the front lines is Emily Zamora. Tell me some campaigns you've been in. What are you doing at UCLA, and are you building a base? That's my question. Do you have a base? Yeah, so at UCLA, we've had an ongoing battle with the Luskin School, primarily because the school has two big issues that we have alerted in our radar, which is one, anti-black conduct, and the second, which would be unethical research protocol. And the two are going hand in hand with the school. So I am leading a campaign on behalf of the Strategy Center on campus um, as the UCLA friends and staff of the Labor Community Strategy Center and the Bus Riders Union. And so far, the base is definitely being built. I mean, people are emailing, people are signing up to be volunteers, to hand out flyers, to help plan out future events, direct action. Channing and I have actually been going to a lot of the events with the organization on campus called UNICA, which is the Central American organization on campus. And so they are one of our supporters. And so we always go to their events and do a presentation and flyer. And so it's really being able to build community within the campus and having solidarity with those groups to be able to take on this demagogue, right? of a middleman, right? That's the, the role that the school has taken on is an unprincipled middleman between the Bus Writers Union and MTA. And so that's Take a minute at. there, because that was great. At the Strategy Center, we have a thing called Give Credit Where Credit Was Due. That was your formulation, the unprincipled middleman. For our listeners to understand, the Strategy Center has a long history of fighting with first the Graduate School of Architecture and Urban Planning, which later became the Luskin School. We've had professors there write an article about the bus rides union, but without even asking us to be in it. And the only way we found out was the University of Minnesota said, do you have a picture of the bus rides union? I said, well, what do you want a picture to go with this guy's article? I said, what article? And then we met with this very well-known professor who we knew very well. And he had to show us, we demanded that he show us the text it was a terrible article, and he was all big in spatial relations, and we said, no, it's racial relations. He was into his theories of space. But more importantly, the unethical issue is he felt that he could write about us, back to Invisible Man, as if we weren't there, we were just an object. So you've been doing a lot of thinking. Explain about this Caltrans project and why would you say the Luskin schools are unprincipled middlemen? So to tackle that question, the Luskin school, the administration was able to sign on to a contract with Caltrans to basically study the consent decree of 1996, which was won by the Bus Riders Union. And so in studying the work, it is very possible that they could go back, write, look into our work, and make suggestions um, for MTA, which... The thing is that MTA has been very hostile towards us because we always call them out on their boat. 
And we've been doing that for decades. And so they are very hostile towards us. And so having this unprincipled middleman, which is the Luskin School, basically digging into the work that we've already released studies on and already released narratives and articles on is another way of putting the school in between the Bus Writers Union and MTA and having the possibility of saying, well, this is what the Bus Writers Union was fighting for, but it's not very successful. Why don't we implement more police on the buses and trains? Why don't we ticket the people more? Why don't we arrest them for more things instead? And so if you're looking back to study the work that we've done and you're going to write something new on it and you didn't let us know, what does that say about the intentions? It's not going to be anything good. And so in, in that same idea, if you're not with the Bus Writers Union, who is the most pro-black radical revolutionary organization that you will see in L.A., and you could make the argument that in the United States, then you're not pro-black, which means that you're anti-black. Well, you know, after you graduate, I wanted you just to work with us. But you'd be a hell of a good lawyer. You got them already prosecuted, and the only question is their sentencing. So great job. I mean it. It's really always a pleasure to watch how your mind works. And that's another thing we do here. I mean, Channing Martinez is here with me and Barbara and Julian Lamb. And when you talk to people, their minds, it's so interesting to watch the cognitive process of how people formulate it. But you're one of our best people to formulate the political line very sharply. And that's a great contribution that we need because for a lot of the younger listeners out there, there's a lot of encouragement. We're trying to get everybody to work together. So how come you don't have your own Instagram page, your own website, (laughs) your own branding already? You're way behind on your branding. Uh, (laughs) What makes you think the way, and this is important, you're finding some great students at UCLA. So when you talk like you talk, it's call and response, right? So tell us about the students that do understand what you're saying and where are they at right now? So the students that do understand, you know, the the political line that, that we're putting forward with the campaign, they did have some questions at first. They did have some questions. Uh, just because there isn't a lot of direct action that happens at the school anymore. And that's also something that my prof- my labor studies professor has talked about, too. It's just that we, and that we talk about at the center, too, is that we are in a counter-revolutionary period. So people are not always talking about what's the most radical po- thing that you could say, things like that. But when I bring forward those ideas to the students, like to the base who who I manage at the at the school, they completely understand. I mean, there's no question about it. They know that there's something wrong, and they know that something has to be done about it. Now, the piece that sometimes is in the air is how to go about it. And so that's where they look to me like, okay, well, I don't really know where to go with this, but you know where to go with this, so I'm going to follow your lead. But they understand the, the core, right, the core issue, which is that there are human consequences to what the Luskin School is doing. And that's where the action is derived from. 818-985-5735 at kpfk.org. The next voice you're going to hear is Kamal Franklin. He's the director of community movement builders in Atlanta and a really great political thinker. He's uh, does a great, he's always sending out blogs and emails and stuff that I don't know how to do yet. But he's very prolific. He's very brilliant. And I hope you enjoy his thoughts. 
So Kamal, I've, of course, we've been talking for a while now. I've seen your excellent website. It starts out saying, protect the black community, stop gentrification. And as I go through your site, it sounds like, except we could change a few things, the two organizations would have a pretty similar concept. So my first question is, how did you get radicalized, revolutionized? Where were you originally at one place? And where was the first leap? So my backstory is I'm born and raised in uh, Brooklyn, New York, raised by my mom, me and my sister. Uh, for the most part, we lived in two places in New York, uh, 619 Nostrand Avenue in Crown Heights, and then 205 Albany Avenue, also in Crown Heights. And 205 Albany Avenue, we moved in 1977, and that's like the projects. Um, it ain't like the projects, it is the projects. So let <laughs> me. <laughs> so, and, and I was at 10 Argyle Road across from on Caton Avenue across from Prospect Park. So, ah, so in Brooklyn, folks, in Brooklyn, folks. In Brooklyn, the BK, okay. <laughs> pre-gentrified Brooklyn. Yes. Um, so, you know, so I, I, you know, like, um, I think I got politicized in a couple of stages. One was because my mom is from Charleston, South Carolina, and she would tell stories about living and growing up under Jim Crow. Um, and I used uh, reference a story my mom told about being in a white Sony playground and amongst her friends. And she was one of the uh, slower ones. And so a cop was chasing him out and she got hit in a billy club by a cop. And she has a scar to this day from that experience. And so when my mom would tell stories about growing up in Charleston and South Carolina, uh, it really started me to look at sort of that environment, what Jim Crow was like, segregation. Um, she would talk about the civil rights movement. So it had me looking at the civil rights movement and watching old documentaries and reading some books about it. And then later on, my mom would tell me some story. My mom's a dark skinned black woman. Um, and she would tell me stories, or tell me particularly about uh, when she decided to have kids that she purposely decided to do so with lighter skinned men. Um, and so my, my sister's father, who's, she's five years older than me, her father is a light-skinned black man, and my father was a white man. Uh, and neither of us know our fathers. We didn't grow up with them. Uh, we probably couldn't point them out if we passed them walking down the street. Uh, but my mom said she did that because she thought it allowed her kids to have a, quote-unquote, better life chance in America. And she's not wrong, right? And so when you think through the idea that someone did that purposefully. And then, you know, there obviously might've been some love involved and, and then all that kind of stuff, but that that was a conscious choice around having kids, it kind of blows your mind. Um, and so that made me be deeper around just um, uh, race relations. Uh, I started reading a lot of Malcolm X. Um, and once you read Malcolm, there's no going back, I believe. So, you know, this is probably like in the 1980s. And so I was reading a lot of Malcolm, a lot of the speeches, um, the movie probably came out a little while after I already was sort of deep into it. Um, and then, you know, from that point on, it was really about what organizations were out there that I could join because I was on the road to being radicalized um, and, you know, reading about the, the history of the Black Power movement and all the things that happens in the six, happened in the 60s and 70s. It just made me think and read more about um, uh, how the world works, the Black community works, who controls what. Um, I'll, later, I'll say later really quickly that I started reading Chomsky in grad school, 
Um, and that also was another important moment for me to really start thinking deeply about imperialism and how the U.S. approaches its form of imperialism and its sort of control over both economies and resources and people around the world. Well, that's a great opening. And, you know, your mom carries a lot of scars. So, you know, it's important that you always sort of start the narrative there. And uh, we know the whole community carries those scars. And that's what we do every day, you know, is try to deal with that. Um, you did a really excellent article critiquing Manny Marable's biography of Malcolm. Uh, you had a very... Why don't you tell us the title of it? Uh, I think it's the academic assassination of Malcolm, or the ivory tower assassination of Malcolm X, if I remember. Yeah. Right. And then we could add the academic assassination of our movement. Uh, but it's a terrific, by the way, I mean, thanks for sending it to me. It's a terrific article. And I want to go back to, I mean, uh, I did this article, uh, I do it every year, it's called uh, All Hail the Revolutionary King. And it traces my understanding, because I was in the civil rights movement at the time, that I see King and Malcolm as much more similar. I think they were both black nationalists, which I'll make the case for. They were anti-imperialist. King had a very different tactical plan. But I thought King was a lot trying to organize white people because he felt that was surrounded in a white settler state. And in your article, I find it very interesting that people are trying to make Malcolm less than socialist, as if socialism is the great place to be, as opposed to a black nationalist anti-imperialist. So I, that was a terrific article. Tell us how we can get it. And then I want to ask you a question about Malcolm X. Sure. Um, and so it was one essay of several um, by compilation book that was an answer and response to Manning Marable's book, uh, Jared Ball, and I believe uh, Todd Stevens Burroughs um, were the editors of the book. You could find it on, on Amazon. Um, and, you know, I think the, the idea behind it was obviously uh, folks have constantly post Malcolm's assassination. Uh, different folks have constantly tried to claim Malcolm and his mantle. Uh, and, and one reason it was so important is because obviously Malcolm was important during his lifetime, but post his assassination with the release of the autobiography, even with the critiques of that, Malcolm became the fatherhood or, or spearhead of a revolutionary black nationalism, which was already burgeoning, but exploded post Malcolm's assassination. And Malcolm became somebody who was referred to constantly, uh, particularly in radical black circles for, again, his speeches and his organizing. People forget the terrific amount of organizing that Malcolm did to one, build the nation, uh, to bring anti-imperialist politics internationally, to build his own organization, the organization of Afro-American unity. Um, so Malcolm was an organizer and a lecturer and he could organize on the streets, right? He came from the culture of the streets, so he could organize in a hood where other people couldn't go. And he was an authentic person. And finally, my new friend, Keith Lamar, we've been writing together. I'm working with, I'm working with Amy Gordajev, who is just a brilliant friend of Keith. Keith wrote me a wonderful letter. 
He's got a book that you should read called Condemned by Keith Lamar. All this can be found at keithlamar.org. I just want to read you one thing on the back. It says, the state of Ohio is trying to kill me. Uh, on a presently undetermined date, unfortunately now there is a determined date, in a time and place where premeditated murder is consciously condoned, they intend to strap me down to a gurney and inject into my body poisons that are designed to stop my heart from beating. This isn't just a book you have in your hands. It's my life. I'm innocent. I've been very active now in working on Keith's case support and very honored that he's my new friend and I'm his, and so is Amy. Hi, Keith. How you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing nope. all right. This is Eric Mann. I'm here with Channing Martinez, Julian Lamb, and of course with Amy. You're going to be on this show. This is the show, everybody. It's called Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution. So we're on every Tuesday at 8 a.m. on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, streaming live on kpfk.org all over the world into your life, Keith, as well. You know, Amy, of course, Amy Goodage has done a great job of briefing me, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. I just really briefly, I mean, I just want to hear your voice, but just to tell you, I was in prison for a year and a half for demonstrations against the mm -hmm. war, and then three and a half more years probation, you know what that's like, where they can put you back at any time. Yeah. Only enough to know I have some sense, nothing compared to what you're going through. So why don't you tell our listeners more about your present and future, where your mind is right now, and we can go back and do the backstory. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly right. Um, as you may have learned from Amy, I'm scheduled to be executed in November, November the 16th, in fact. And we are right now trying to elevate the campaign, trying to um, bring awareness to my situation, um, educate people about what happened to me in 1995, which is the year I was sentenced to death for crimes I didn't commit. And I've been saying it from the beginning. I mean, one of the things that I'm, one of the hardest things I've been trying to do, trying to people to wrap their mind around the fact that you could be sentenced to death in this country and you're innocent and that the people right. that sentence you to death know you're innocent but they the ones who have held back the evidence to prove your innocence and it's, it's almost as if what I'm trying to do in, in trying to convince people that I'm trying to convince them that the sun doesn't rise in the morning because all of us have been, and including myself, uh, you know, part of the reason why I demanded a trial because I believe in justice. You know, all of us grow up here in America thinking my country, Timothy, or raising our, you know, saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. I did that too, even though I grew up in poverty, even though I grew up in the ghetto. You know, I was still equally indoctrinated. And so in 1995, when you know, the state wanted me to plead guilty to crimes I didn't commit, I demanded a trial. Right. And um, that didn't go, 
you know, how I expected, but, you know, that was a part of my education, something that I had to learn the hard way about, you know, reality in this country. So, you know, I'm just going around, I'm educating people. I have a book club called Native Sons Literacy Project, which started as a way to interact with at-risk youth, quote-unquote. I don't particularly like that name, but, you know, uh, um, I, I go into juvenile places in the beginning, at least, and um, talk to young people about the trap that has been set for them. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. And try to get them to kind of see and understand how to navigate. Um, but part of that, you know, difficult assignment is trying to convince kids not to be kids. To think, you know, above your, you know, your, your age and your predicament right. and try to look into the future, you know. But that's what books, you know, allow you to do. You know, fiction allows you to imagine. You know, and you know that's one of the things that I that I was trying to do. So it has, uh, you know, developed into a broader um, thing. Where I'm reading with college students, um, professors, so on and so forth. I've even taught several college classes and whatnot. And so that's the thing that I'm doing there. Like I'm going around, I'm educating people about the criminal justice system, and lo and behold, the people who put me here 30 years ago. They didn't just do this to Keith Lamar. This is something that they did to, to, to a lot of people, a lot of black people in particular. And all those cases are now coming to, to light. You know, a guy here in Ohio named um, Elwood Jones was recently granted a new trial because the same people who put me here did the same thing to him. Right. And a few weeks ago, another person who was, who was in for 12 years ran into the same thing. And so now I'm not the, you know, the lone voice in the wilderness telling the story about these prosecutors. And these prosecutors in Cincinnati are really indicative of how the whole system works. Right. But this is, you know, something that, you know, so now, you know, um, I'm starting to, to, to kind of um, gain some ground in, 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 in telling the story. But, you know, in, in terms of my own particular case, there's a documentary um, um, in the works. There's a podcast in the works. There's an album that we've been doing. And so I'm focused daily on, on, and I'm having these conversations with people like yourself. And this is a day-to-day grind, you know, a day-to-day thing. And this is how, and I was telling Amy earlier, I was speaking to her earlier. I said, you know, Amy, even with everything that we've been doing, and it's a lot. And she's been on the front line since the very beginning. You know, my campaign started off with just she and I in the vision room, imagining, you know, what could happen if we really, really, you know, try to do something righteous with our lives. Uh, I'm in awe. I just wanted to read a couple of sentences, Keith, if that's okay, from your story, just to say with no elaboration. Uprising in 1993, where you did nothing, solitary confinement and death row, contaminated evidence, paid jailhouse informants, false narrative, withholding of evidence, suppressed confession of actual perpetrator, remote Ohio community, all-white jury, black juries were dismissed, and this welcome to America. Yeah, that's basically a blueprint. You know, um, it happens um, to people every day in this country, poor people particularly people, brown and black people, um, of course. Um, yes, you know, um, it's just something that um, uh, happens 
that's prevalent in this um, so-called criminal justice system. Yeah, definitely. So I hope you've enjoyed today's session of Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution. I think by now you can repeat 818-985-5735 in your sleep. But I also want to tell you that you're listening on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org, available on voicesfromthefrontlines.org. But as Margot Iser told me to make sure